Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I am the Reverend David Fletcher. With me in the studio is Professor Dr. Luke Galen Esquire III. Hi. And Mr. Jeremy Bean. Sup, Dave. Sorry, I didn't have any fancy titles to give you. I have a master's degree in science. And I have an online ministerial degree, so... It's called Jeremy Dr. Science. Take that. It's just, just social sciences. Oh, man. I'm a loser. It's better than a fine arts degree. To begin today, this episode requires a little bit of background information. Almost a year ago now, when we were first starting out, we recorded a couple of episodes as kind of a, a trial, and they've become known as the lost episodes because literally we lost them. They were raptured up. Yeah, they were raptured away. There's no record of those early, early RD episodes. And thank God for that, because they they weren't very good. They were pretty terrible. But on one of these early episodes, we spent a good deal of time talking about religion in the military. Mm-hmm. And it became kind of a sore spot for us when we lost the episode and we hadn't revisited it. Until we got an email from one of our listeners who was herself in the military. And this led us to decide to revisit this topic. Resurrect it, so to speak. To resurrect it. So we got an email from one of our female listeners who was in the Air Force. She is no longer in the Air Force, but some of her friends still are serving. So she asked that she remain anonymous. She writes in part, quote, I've never held any belief in the supernatural, but for some reason I'd never really articulated this fact about myself, and at times I guess I felt it would be impolitic for me to admit as much. Maybe it's just a reality that, socially at least, Americans often avoid serious debate about faith or non-faith. And uh, Austin Dacey, I think, has something to say about that. This changed for me, she says, when I joined the Air Force. I served in military intelligence, oxymoron, yes, haha, she points that out, that wasn't me being glib, and was quickly brought up to speed that my personal beliefs were now the collective property of my evangelical and Mormon peers to judge. In boot camp, she says, my wingman confided in me her deep personal experience with her savior, Jesus Christ, then, barely a half hour later, told me how she couldn't wait to get to Iraq so that she could, quote, shoot herself in Iraqi. I laid on my cot at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering what the hell I'd gotten myself into. These people must be exceptions to the rule, I thought, or at least the bottom of the barrel intellectually. When I get to my training base, things will be different. It seemed logical to me at the time that a military intelligence base will have a higher percentage of high thinkers. You know, rational people who aren't absolute hypocritical religious morons. I was wrong. Sort of. She says that when she arrived, she had high hopes. She soon realized, though, that she had stepped into a hostile world. 
quote, our morning formations would conclude with a prayer, which at first I did not object to, but soon realized that I could not in good conscience accept silently. The last straw, or maybe more accurately, the first straw, was when the chaplain actually called on God and Jesus Christ to help us defeat our enemies. Maybe that doesn't sound so bad, but there was a definite character to these prayers that framed the Iraq conflict and the global war on terror as a religious test. I was highly uncomfortable, to say the least. Now, her experiences are not dissimilar to those of many other people in the military. No, not at all. For example, Jeremy Hall, who's recently been in the news. Yes, several things, news stories have come to light. Actually, it's like a perfect storm uh, uh, of uh, religion and the military issues. And Jeremy Hall was one that got a lot of press on the uh, the morning show on CBS Sunday mornings and uh, uh, and other uh, mainstream news outlets because he was a, a uh, decorated uh, veteran of the Iraq War, uh, and he um, established a free thinker group or an atheist group there, a discussion group, you know, non-religious discussions, probably a lot like what we're doing now. On and his military base. Yes. In Iraq. Correct. And uh, a, a officer, I believe it was a major, somebody fairly high up, came to the meetings and essentially read the riot act about how this was unconstitutional and how he wished they would change their mind and see the light. Officer, of course, uh, then denied making these statements to the group, but other members have then supported Jeremy Hall's original contention that these things were said. And once it got out that this uh, that Jeremy was an atheist, he essentially was persecuted to the point where he had to have another soldier be a bodyguard. He was uh, verbally yeah. harassed mm-hmm. and threatened. Uh, and they actually sent him back to the States, too. And now and he's back at Fort Riley, Kansas. Because it was... It, the interesting thing is he was sent home from Iraq because it was no longer safe for him not because of insurgents, not because of the debacle there, but simply because he was known on the base as the an atheist, atheist guy. Atheist faggot, mm-hmm. I believe, was the... Uh, That's atheist. right. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy Hall is in the news right now for the stand he's taken for being a military atheist, an atheist in the foxholes. A year ago, when we were preparing to do a similar episode on this theme, the person in the news, you may remember, some of you, was Pat Tillman. Who actually goes back even further than that? Yeah. but about he, a year ago, the some of some new information was coming to light. Yeah, Pat Tillman, you may recall, back in the very beginning of the uh, Iraq War. Well, of the of the uh, Afghanistan War. Yeah, I believe he was stationed. Yes, he was in. He was stationed in Afghanistan. It was after nine eleven that he signed. Right, up. as part of the whole propaganda march to war uh, that was going on with the Bush administration, Pat Tillman you may recall, was a professional football player. He walked away from a multi-million dollar contract with the Arizona Cardinals when he enlisted. So a a sports hero leaving good future for himself to... Walking away from a large chunk of money to... Do his patriotic duty, Mm -hmm. serve, serve our country. And he ended up being killed during battle. Well... As it turns out. Yeah. He was killed in the euphemistically titled Friendly Fire fight. That's Um, right. He was killed by our own soldiers, an accident that happens a lot during war. That is not at all unusual. But that fact did not come to light until, I think, years later. Yeah. He was given a uh, silver star, promoted to a higher rank after he died, 
Of course, it covered up the fact that it was friendly fire, but that was not the only thing that was fishy about what was going on. A lot more details came to light, and that's why it came up a year ago, as I believe hearings were in process mm-hmm. to discuss the matter. Also, though, what some people may not have known was that Pat Tillman was an atheist. And there was some sort of talk, there was some sort of speculation that perhaps perhaps there was foul play involved. That was all very speculative, but what was certain was his superior, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Kalzerich, made a comment in regards to why were Tillman's parents not satisfied with the investigation. Never mind all the fishiness. Never mind the fact that Kalzerich personally was the one who awarded the Silver Star and was in the one who led the investigation into how he died and may have actually covered up some of the evidence. His response to why the Tillmans were still pushing for government disclosure as to what had happened was the following, quote, there have been numerous unfortunate cases of fatricide and the parents have basically said, okay, it was an unfortunate accident and they let it go. So this is, I don't know, these people have a hard time letting it go. It may be because of their religious beliefs. Continuing on, he says, when you die, I mean, there is supposedly a better life, right? Well, if you are an atheist and you don't believe in anything, if you die, what is there to go to? Nothing. You are worm dirt. So for their son to die for nothing and now he is no more, that is pretty hard to get your head around. So I don't know how an atheist thinks. I can only imagine that it would be pretty tough. So quite possibly the same guy who exploited their son's celebrity for propaganda purposes and aided in the cover-up, is now trying to take cheap shots at them for their atheism and, in fact, said in that quote that their son died for nothing. So that's why Pat Tillman made it into the news a year ago for us because of the, the callous way in which his parents were treated because of their atheism and Pat Tillman's own atheism was at issue. There's been a lot of evidence in the news of how Christianized the United States military has become. And so Reasonable Doubts is going to walk you through a short history of headlines documenting this. We begin in 2005, 2005 being the year that all that information started pouring out about the now infamous scandal with the United States Air Force. The Air Force Academy is located in the beautiful Colorado Springs area. Isn't that the same town that Focus on the Family is from? Yes, and when I visited mm. the Air Force Academy, I believe, if I can remember correctly, that you can actually see James Dobson's Focus on the Family headquarters from the Air Force Academy. Aren't there other mega church people that were from there? Hmm, I don't know. Um, what was that guy's name? Boy. Yeah. What, which which guy? Yeah, the guy all the methamphetamines and the homosexual yeah. prostitute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah meth yeah, yeah, and yeah. butt sex. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, good old, good old Ted Haggard. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. his yeah. name. That's, that's right. right. So, yeah, uh, obviously a pretty uh, right-wing religious fundamentalist area. And, but that's of course, is not going to leak into the prestigious Air Force Academy. No, no, no sir. But it did. 
several, several reports of aggressive proselytizing of the cadets there at the Air Force Academy surfaced, probably only because uh, there was already a scandal breaking at the time about how callously several rape victims were treated mm-hmm. at the time. So, so that, that scandal kind of opened up the door for criticism of the proselytization there. Uh, misogyny and religious fundamentalism don't go together, do they? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Of something like 150 complaints that were compiled by watchdog groups, there are also several facts that came to light. This is a quote from... With God on our side, one man's war against the evangelical coup in America's military by Michael L. Weinstein and David Say. In their book, they say, quote, Tens of thousands of cadets and staff at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, open up their federally funded newspaper and see solicitations signed by hundreds of Academy senior officials and their spouses unabashedly proclaiming, We believe in the only real hope for mankind, Jesus Christ. Cadets are bombarded with official command encouragement, in quotes, to see the movie Passion of the Christ at local movie theaters, and stridently sectarian flyers are strategically placed at every cadet's seat for three straight days in the Academy dining hall. And I believe also if you don't go to chapel and in formation, that's known as the heathen wing, they called them. <laughs> right. And our listener who sent us this email says, fellow service members told stories about how rank advancement was tied to one's status as a good Christian and tales of airmen being outed as part of a larger Christian movement to moralize the force created underlying tension everywhere and everywhere, everywhere, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yep. In fact, the Air Force Deputy Chief of Chaplains even had the balls to tell a New York Times reporter on a front-page story that it is now official U.S. Air Force policy to reserve the right to evangelize the unchurched. So that's our Air Force Academy, unfortunately. By the way, if you want to see a film that's being made about that, you can visit the uh, Mike Weinstein's uh, organization, militaryreligiousfreedom.org. Mm-hmm. And he has a uh, film of the um, With God on Our Side there uh, where he shows some incidents or some of them are like uh, re- interviews and dramatizations of the discrimination that various people have suffered there, you know, like him and his son reported being called an effing Jew. and, and A Christ the, killer. Yes, yeah, some of those incidents have been, uh, you can go see the, the clip at their website. Yeah, just as a personal story, the first time I ever encountered anything from the Air Force Academy was when I was attending a homeschool graduation for a friend of mine who was a conservative Christian. Uh, His little homeschool group got together to do a little graduation ceremony, and we had a representative from the Air Force Academy do a big ceremony presenting him with his whatever certificate that he was being admitted. So a lot of pomp and circumstance there. So so apparently they do house calls as well. Hmm. But, you know, maybe that's just the Air Force Academy, right? Maybe it's a particular culture in one particular branch it's of our military. Because they're like angels. Yeah, right. and the, the breath of the Spirit keeps the planes aloft. That's yes, right. That's yes. why they need it. Of course. It. So clearly the association is there. Unfortunately not. In August of 2007, information came out about aggressive proselytizing at the Pentagon. The Pentagon itself. 
because it's a five-pointed star? No, wait, no, that's, that's Wiccan. They're going to reshape it to be not a pentagon but a crucifix? Yes, this from Americans United for Separation of Church and State. A new Defense Department report finds that four generals and three other officers improperly used their official positions to promote a fundamentalist Christian evangelistic group. Officers appeared in a 10-minute video for Christian Embassy, a nonprofit organization. The video showed officers in uniform explaining the role faith and the Christian Embassy played in their lives. Some even appear at their offices in the Pentagon. So they were filming this in the, in the Pentagon. Pentagon. Yes, and this was a report from the Defense Department's Inspector General. Now, I'm sure a lot of Christians read this story or may even be listening to this podcast might say, so what? You know, is this just another attack on their faith? But actually, it is military policy that when you are in uniform, you represent the military. Mm-hmm. And they've been cracking down on war protesters in uniform for for a long time, Since especially Vietnam. yeah, especially during the height of uh, the Iraq War, so this video uh, violates those same regulations. But it's actually it's it's much more sinister than this. Many people under the investigation were very high ranking. One was Army Brigadier General Bob Kaslin, who was formerly Deputy Director for Political Military Affairs for the War on Terrorism. Another is Major General Sutton. Sutton even got noticed by reporters in Turkey who saw this video and created quite an embarrassment. A a Turkish newspaper publicized how he's part of an extreme fundamentalist Christian sect and used this video on their website, and he had to make a statement to several Turkish military officials. They probably don't understand because their military is very secular there. In fact, it's yeah. the bastion of secularism in the Mus- in the Islamic countries. Yeah, the military, actually. Uh, <laughs> is that true? Believe it or not. I did not know that. Yes. The organization Christian Embassy was founded by Bill Wright, who started Campus Crusade for Christ, and they basically just exist to proselytize members of the government and military. They'll hold daily Bible studies, outreach events in uh, in Washington, and uh, they actually get access to the Pentagon's executive dining room for their prayer breakfasts. Now, wow. what's really scary is that when they filmed this video, it was a promotional video to try to build up fundraiser support for them. When they filmed this inside the Pentagon, they got 34 volunteers who had unrestricted access to the Pentagon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Unrestricted access to the Pentagon? That's what the article says. Now, I'm sure there's some sort of restriction. I'm sure they're not going into, like, the master room where, where you know, the smoking I men. don't know. I saw the Transformers movie, and it's apparently <laughs> really easy to to slip by. There's um, piles of yeah. top-secret documents yeah. laying around. Yeah. You can roll on I'm, them. I'm like sure. And frozen robot aliens and stuff. Yeah, but the article reports unrestricted access. Now, how the hell did they get this? The reason they were able to do this was because Ralph Benson, a Pentagon chaplain, lied about why they were making the video. Lies make baby Jesus cry. Yeah, and he was able to get them contractor badges, which they were not contractors, right. that gave them access. Now, when all these people were questioned about this, when this investigation was going on, perhaps the most chilling fact of all was a lot of them didn't actually try to cover their own asses. They didn't try to make it sound like they were not involved or there was some sort of misunderstanding. Some of them didn't even see what the problem was. One, in fact, of the excuses that was used, quoting the Pentagon report, 
The Christian embassy had become a quasi-federal agency since the DOD, the Department of Defense, had endorsed the organization to general officers for over 25 years. So in other words, what? What, what do you mean? <laughs> If I had known What's that it was improper in any way to be overtly proselytizing in part of the military, I assure you, I definitely <laughs> a would. A quasi-federal agency. So, the, so that's in the Pentagon. That shows you some of the influence there. I'm just going to maybe give a shout-out to other things that you might want to investigate yourself if you're interested. But a couple of other winners, of course, the crates of the military version of the Left Behind series a special military volume of as the book. W- as well as the video game that was sent to Iraqi troops. Do they call it the left, yeah. right, left, right, left behind videos? <laughs> yeah. The, the left behind video game where... Um, where you can be a soldier. Yes, you have to... Shoot, shoot the... Uh, you have to try to convert, and if your prayers don't work, then you have to shoot the heathens who yeah. will not convert. And this was this was sent as a care package to Iraqi soldiers. Eventually... They pulled it yeah. when there was too big of an uproar. Which one of my Christian friends was really, really offended by this game. I mean, not not only because he's a decent human being and sees how wrong that is, but right. also because um, in that game you had the option to play as the Antichrist and shoot the Christians. Really? Yeah, we should get it. This is, sounds kind of fun. Game night. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so they sent crates of those books and uh, apparently the video games as well to mm-hmm. people in the military. I wonder what the military edition is like for those books? How is it different? Is it more militaristic than the original (laughs) versions? I don't know. I don't know. The French press did an article on mass... The French press? Like how you make coffee? Oh. (laughs) Sorry. The French journalists, some French journalists, reported on mass baptisms happening before the first United States assault on Fallujah, I'll just read you a quote from there since it's so wonderful. This is translated into English. Men with buzz cuts and clad in their camouflage waved their hands in the air, M-16 assault rifles beside them, and chanted heavy metal-flavored lyrics in praise of Jesus Christ late on Friday in a yellow brick chapel. They counted among thousands of troops surrounding the city of Fallujah, seeking solace, blah, blah, blah. Boy, way to way to win the uh, citizens to your side. That's too. right. A loud female voice cried over the loudspeakers, saying, "You are the sovereign. Your name is holy. You are the pure, spotless Lamb." As Marines clasped their hands, closed their eyes, reflecting on what lay ahead for them, and then lined up, and their chaplain blessed them with holy oil to protect them. The uh, only way that several were then taken aside and baptized as uh, newly converted Christians before the battle took place. The only way that PR campaign could have been more successful is if the female voice had come from a female wearing short shorts and a bikini top. <laughs> Who that really appeals well to the, the Muslim crowd. And if they had been baptized with liquor. Who would have thought that in, that engaging a Christian crusade sensibility would be in any way perceived as offensive to Muslims? They're so sensitive. I don't, know. I don't know. They're also freaking out about the whole thing where soldiers are using the Quran for target practice. Yeah, yeah. But why is that offensive? I don't get it. Yeah, that's the latest. I get, we'll just we have a mountain here. We'll just have to skip a bunch of them. But the latest incarnation of this from CNN.com. U.S. soldier uses Quran for target practice and military apologizes. Uh, this is from May 18th of this year. 
A soldier used the Quran, Islam's holiest book, for target practice, forcing the chief United States commander in Baghdad to issue a formal apology on Sunday. The soldiers, whose name was not released, shot at a Quran on May 9th. Villagers said the Quran used in the incident was discovered two days later, according to the military. Now, the shooter also wrote a letter of apology. Get this. He says, I sincerely hope that my actions have not diminished the partnership that our two nations have developed together. My actions were short-sighted, very reckless, and irresponsible, but... Oh, there's a Drum roll, please. In my heart, the actions were not malicious. Of course, copies of the pictures of the Quran obtained by CNN show multiple bullet holes and an expletive scrawled across one of its pages. Now, actually, in a non-malicious way. Yeah, uh, originally the soldier claimed he wasn't aware the book was a Quran, <laughs> but the United <laughs> States officials weren't going to try to pass that one by. Can them. you get a marksmanship badge and instead of like a little target thing? It could actually be the the Quran that you could wear for your when you pass your marksmanship. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they should just wear Qurans strapped to their chest and and hopes that'll make their body armor more effective. Nobody will shoot at it. Good strategy. Might want to try that out. You get the point. The degree to which evangelical Christians, especially, have penetrated the United States Armed Forces and apparently feel they have license to evangelize and convert people to their cause, it should bother us all. It's especially harmful to our reputation abroad, to other men and women in the service who do not share their views and do not want to be identified with that uh, mentality, it really, it is, it, it's, it's a point of shame. Do we even want to get into how contradictory that might be to the common tenets of Christianity as being pacifism? And, and like, why would that particular belief system mesh so well with the army given its... <laughs> Let's go there. Help us out, Luke. Well, does anybody, does anybody see, uh, maybe I'm just being a crazy wacko liberal here, but uh, given, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Christianity promote things like uh, pacifism, essentially, and uh, tolerance? Certain and, readings of it, sure. And uh, where where does this so easily mesh with uh, an authoritarian kind of militaristic agenda? How can people reconcile those aspects of the religion with, you know, waving Bibles and guns uh, in each hand? Can anybody answer that from here? Well, I mean, there's no there's no doubt that the turn the other cheek thing. Of course, there's mm-hmm. a lot of pacifism in Christianity, but you know the great thing about the Bible is it lends itself to plenty of different interpretations. I mean, we have Christian sects like the we just talked about the Amish. We talked about you know Quakers, all those things where their Christianity to them espouses pacifism, the exact opposite of military. Right. But when you get into these groups that are much more concerned with the end times and the you know the left behind mentality, well, that that, that is true. Then it's not so passive it's actually it becomes a what can we do to help bring about the apocalypse that is true a large proportion of these groups and ministries do seem to be pushing a really sort of armageddon type of mentality i mean they they want to see a godly army raised they're they're expecting these these battles as was demonstrated when we talked about pastor hagee on our last episode these conflicts that are going right now in the Middle East are much more than just the geopolitical difficulties of the day. They are 
this kind of cosmic Armageddon, end of the world type of stuff. This is the forces of evil versus the forces of good in a lot of people's minds. Well, we could get into that in a, at, at some other uh, episode, but it, it appears clear that when you have like you have this uh, st- just stop with gospel ideology, you're nowhere near that. But like you just said, once you have an eschatological mm-hmm. thing of it's not only uh, love your neighbor and all that you know wandering sage stuff, but uh, end times, it, it it almost as if uh, the uh, the apocalypse and the Armageddon type stuff uh, promotes a certain you know uh, take action now uh, take up take up arms right. and take action now because this is the, this is the end game here. Well, let's not forget that I don't think that's inconsistent with the Christian message as presented in the Bible. Yeah, Jesus says to turn the other cheek and to love those who hate you, but the rest of his message is because <laughs> when the end comes, the axe will be laid at the at the root of the trees that bear oh, bad fruit. I mean, the idea is that love your neighbor for a time because God is going to take care of them in the end. Right. Well, where does, but where does that say that you have to then take care of them in the end? Yeah, but if you perceive the end is nigh. If vengeance is mine type stuff, why do we have to do, why do you have to do any of this stuff? Why not God can take care of itself? If he wants to come to zap the heathen, let him zap them. I guess. Maybe we should read the Left Behind books and figure out why. I think this is also the certain authoritarianism that's always present in in far right type ideology. And that is, is that it's not okay just to have pluralism. If there's another type of view, you have to take some action and do something about it. That's mm-hmm. kind of part of the whole authoritarian is, is intolerance of, of opposite views. So that's where the, probably where we can see right-wing uh, authoritarianism ideology meets with a religious justification. There are followers. And if you have a pyramid system with God at the top saying, okay, here's go ahead and do this, then it makes it easier for you to do that. Hmm. Like Amway. <laughs> yes, just like uh, Amway's just like the military. Yeah. In so many ways. Instead of selling products and toothpaste, you could uh, shoot bullets. That's right. There are some people who are trying to do something about it. And that is, uh, uh, we mentioned before, um, uh, the Mikey Weinstein has uh, has developed an organization called the uh, Military Religious Freedom uh, Group. And you can, they're at the militaryreligiousfreedom.org, that you can go to their website and see, like, for example, videos or books that cover the phenomena that we've been talking about. They have also... Uh, assisted Jeremy Hall in his legal case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also uh, um, publicized a lot of these uh, flaps and gotten several thousand. Uh, they, uh, they're in their words, they've been deluged by reports, sort of like our listener email, right. of people saying, "Yes, I've experienced this type of proselytization too. I've experienced this intertwinement of, of church and." And military, and so I, you know, predict that groups like this that they will they, these things will actually be more uncovered as we see kind of a waning of political administration type support from the Bush thing. That there's going to be a backlash, right? And of course, now a- might be the time. Yeah, um, the AU, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, has been involved in a <coughs> lot of these cases. The Freedom from Religion Foundation had one with a, a veterans hospital that. Something like they weren't giving benefits to people who weren't deemed spiritually healthy or or something like that. And, of course, the ACLU gets involved in some of these groups, too. So there are people fighting this indoctrination, but it's a big problem with a lot of money. And the military is is a hard target. Well, I guess what us civilians can do is to try to raise awareness about this, let people know out there that it's a problem, but 
to our courageous free thinkers of all persuasions in the United States military. I mean, we got to hold up people like this Jeremy Hall here for being American heroes by speaking out against this. Well, also uh, uh, that we should mention another um, film that's coming out is Constantine's Sword, uh, where you can also look that up on the Internet. There's clips from that. This is by uh, a former Catholic priest, Jim Carroll, who was involved in the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement, but he has made a film about the things that we've been talking about, about the, uh, but goes more into the historical depth of things like, for example, mm-hmm. inquisitions and crusades, about how easily religious uh, religions combined with militaristic uh, type behavior. So that's Constantine's sword. Sounds like this issue is really going to be around for a while. Sounds like it's getting more press these days. Yeah, it's nice, though, that we are hearing about it. It's nice that some of these people are standing up at great risk to themselves and to their military career and trying to do something about it. And and we should also point out that the people who are doing this are not anti-military. You know, they, like Michael, what was it, Weinstein? Mm-hmm. His family tradition has been all about attending the Air Force Academy. He's He's no enemy to the Air Force Academy. He's doing this because he loves that institution. He values it, and he wants to make it better. And so are a lot of these people who are standing up about it. And they definitely earn my respect, and I hope they're successful. And I hope the rest of us civilians could do something to raise awareness about it. One thing to keep in mind, too, is as bad as it gets, I don't think anybody would be ready for the gruesome realities that would await them say, if the United States military were dominated by godless atheists, if it was humanist proselytization that was going on in the military. I mean, imagine what that would be like, right? And so we thought as a nice little treat on the show today. What would that be like? We would bring you an installment of Doubtcast Theater. Reasonable Doubts Podcast presents a Doubtcast Theater production. This Humanist's Army. Report. We're discussing the results of the recent Prayer versus Kevlar study. Um, yes, um, the two groups were not significantly different in terms of bullet penetration, with the Kevlar group showing approximate. Freaking armed forces to the network would have freaking killed that. Put something interesting on once in a while. <laughs> because after the first trial, uh, we couldn't find any volunteers for the prayer only condition. <laughs> I swear if the sand monkeys don't kill us first, the freaking boredom will. Yeah. What did you just say? Oh, sorry, sir. I didn't know that you uh, were... Am I supposed to believe you didn't? You did not know that by objectifying the enemy, you dehumanized them? 
What in the name of Paul Kurtz do you think you're doing? Or did you not know that by dehumanizing the enemy, you make it easier psychologically? Sorry, I swear, I swear to God, I would never... Swear to God? Uh, it's just a figure of speech, sir. What did you just call me? Nothing, sir. Don't call me, sir, or do you want to perpetuate a hierarchy of authority? Well, this is the military. Excuse me? What? I just mean that... Excuse me? Are you questioning my authority, boy? No, sir. And why the hell not? What, you can't formulate a single thought of your own, you mouth-breathing, illiterate cave dweller? No, sir. I mean... Oh, I see. I guess you're so spineless that you can't summon the courage to assert yourself when you think someone is mistaken. No, no, I... I just... Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be so tough on you. I guess intellectual autonomy is only the privilege of higher rank. Whereas newbies like you just follow orders. Well, I mean, this is how it works with the chain of command and all, so... Drop down and give me 50. And while you're down there, fundy-loving shit for brains, give me five arguments against the existence of God. I... The unintelligibility of theistic concepts. I can't hear you! Such as uh, unlimited attributes like omnipotence. Is that the best you can do? Uh, the cosmological argument can't escape problems of infinite regress. What? I'm sorry, I just can't think of anymore. You're pathetic. You're worse than pathetic. Some might be just great The human is negotiated Sound off Well, we hope you enjoyed that I think we've gotten a pretty good response so far From some of our little comic shorts that we've done in the past Like the Carl Sagan logos And, of course, the history of the Grand Rapids-based Reasonable Doubts podcast so we thought we would try a few more this summer as Doubtcast Theaters. Let us know what you think about them, and feel free to send us any ideas that you might have for funny little skits. Moving on now, we're going to do a segment that we haven't done in quite a while, and that is our counter-apologetics segment. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Since today we've been talking about Christianity's influence in the military, apocalyptic views of the future tend to play a strong role in Christian militancy, I decided it might be a good time to take a look at one of the supposed prophecies in the Old Testament that many Christians claim to have been fulfilled that has apocalyptic overtones. This prophecy is in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 to be specific, often referred to as the 70 weeks prophecy. It's also considered to be one of the most watertight cases of a prophecy that foretells the life and death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, an apologetic organization, puts the 70 weeks 
prophecy at the top of his list of fulfilled prophecies, evidence for the reliability of the Bible. This is a quote from Hugh Ross that you can get off of the Reasons to Believe website. Hugh Ross says, Unique among all books ever written, the Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail many years, sometimes centuries, before they occur. He claims that approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, about 2,000 of which already have been fulfilled, to the letter, no errors. He says the remaining 500 or so reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as the days go by. Speaking of the prophecy in Daniel, Hugh Ross says, Sometime before 500 B.C., the prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years after the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He further predicted that the Messiah would be cut off, killed, and that this event would take place prior to a second destruction of Jerusalem. Abundant documentation shows that these prophecies were perfectly fulfilled in the life and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The decree regarding the restoration of Jerusalem was issued by Persia's king Artaxerxes to the Hebrew priest Ezra in 458 B.C. 483 years later, the ministry of Jesus Christ began in Galilee. Jesus' crucifixion occurred only a few years later, and about four decades later, in 70 A.D., came the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. So let me first actually read the passage to you and then give you a general idea of why many apologists feel this is such a good case of a fulfilled prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, says, Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks, and for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. And sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27 he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering to cease, and in their place there shall be an, ab an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. So some wonderful um, prophetic hyperbole there. Now what's this all about? Well, one point that is agreed upon by everyone involved, um, apologists and skeptics, is that these 70 weeks are not to be taken as literal uh, seven-day weeks. Instead, they are groupings of years. 
Each week represents seven years, and so we're talking 70 groups of seven years. So seven times 70, this prophecy is supposed to cover a time span of about 490 years. So this is where, without a uh, pad and a pencil, the, it might get a little tricky, but see if you can follow along. The key event in this prophecy comes around the 69th week. Again, in Daniel 9, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. So seven times seven is 49. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. So add now 62 weeks of years, which would be 434 years, added to that 49, and we get 483 years until this key event of the prophecy which is the anointed one shall be cut off or killed and should have nothing. Christian apologists claim that what it means for the anointed one to be cut off and killed is actually a reference to Jesus Christ's crucifixion. So since, since the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem happened in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which is in 445 BCE, if you, are at, if you are to add 476 years to that, you would get to the year 31 AD, approximately the time that Jesus was supposed to have been crucified. Now, if you've been paying close attention to the numbers, you would say, well, where are you getting that 476 years? Aren't we supposed to cover a span of 483 years to get there? Um, yes, that is true. But as Christian apologists will point out, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar where uh, years are only 360 years long. And so if you were to factor that in, this prophecy... Um, written in Daniel, predicts with startling accuracy Jesus Christ's crucifixion to the year that it was supposed to have happened. Now, that's pretty damn impressive. And so skeptics have sometimes had a hard time countering this prophecy. It does seem pretty amazing. But, as so often is the case with apologetic arguments, things are not always as they seem. So there's a lot of problems with this interpretation of the prophecy, uh, but let's uh, just take them one by one. So uh, and one major one is uh, a problem with their calculations. First of all, it is true that the Jews had a lunar calendar. But what the apologists failed to mention is that they also had an elaborate system of leap years so that every 19 years the Jewish calendar would sync with the solar calendar. If you want to uh, read a good discussion on how these leap years work, there's a very good um, explanation that you can find in Bible Prophecy, Failure or Fulfillment by Tim Callahan. Um, definitely a book that should be on any counter-apologist shelf. 
And so if you refigure for those leap years, you end up somewhere around 38 AD, which has overshot the time that Jesus is supposed to be crucified. If that doesn't seem like a very big deal, um, it's important to note that the historical record has Pontius Pilate being deposed in 36 AD. So there's no way this is supposed to work. So the first thing to note is right there, right there, 70, uh, Daniel's 70 weeks should be disqualified as a fulfillment of prophecy by Hugh Ross's very own terms. In the Reasons to Believe article, Hugh Ross says, The acid test for identifying a prophet of God is recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 21, verses 21 through 22. According to this Bible passage, God's prophets, as distinct from Satan's spokesmen, are 100% accurate in their predictions, and there is no room for error. So, according, by, uh, according to Hugh Ross's own criteria, this one fails. Nevertheless, it's still a pretty eerie coincidence. It's getting awfully, awfully close to the time that Jesus was crucified. But if you look a little bit deeper, things get even worse for this prophecy. First of all, Christian apologists simply assume that the term anointed one is referring to the Messiah. Now, they might be forgiven that because the King James Bible um, often translates that term, that Hebrew word, as Messiah. But most modern translations translate it anointed one precisely because the Hebrew word, uh, and I know I'm going to screw it up, but it's uh, uh, Mashiach, uh, because the Hebrew word means anointed and consecrated. The term is used twice to refer to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, uh, five times to high priests of the temple, and 29 times to refer to Israelite kings. It's a word that's in circulation, and by no means does it mean the, capital T, Messiah, capital M. Second, there's a major problem with when we should start counting the 70 weeks. The texts simply say from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And apologists have chosen to use the decree that's made in 445 BCE, but that's not the earliest instance that you could start counting from. Because years earlier, in 538 BCE, Cyrus made the command that the Jews be able to return and rebuild Jerusalem. If you use that as your date, you get the 69th week of Daniel taking place in 55 BCE, which is way too early to be a reference to Jesus. Now, things get even more interesting when you take a look at the Jewish interpretation of this prophecy. Jewish commentators uh, usually interpreted the passage from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem as a reference to the prophecy made in Jeremiah that the exile would come to an end. For that reason, the first seven weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks are supposed to refer to exile in Babylon. So counting from the end of the exile in, fifth, in 538 BCE and adding 62 weeks, because the first seven were in exile, you get the date of Daniel's 69th week in 104 BCE. 
again, far, far too early to be a reference to Jesus. And I think this point should be utterly devastating to Christian apologists because if we take the Jewish interpretations seriously, then actually the prophecy suddenly makes a lot more sense. Daniel's 70 weeks are almost certainly referring to the persecution that the Jews suffered under Antiochus Epiphanes that is recorded in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees. So let me give you a little history there. In the middle part of the second century BCE, Antiochus IV ruled Jerusalem, and he was attempting to put down rebellions that had been plaguing that area for quite a while. He believed that the problem was Judaism, so his way of dealing with it was to try to eradicate Jewish religion. He outlawed the Sabbath observances. He outlawed the ritual purity laws. He got rid of circumcision, uh, and he even tried to force them to assimilate to non-Jewish customs. Now, the real pisser is when he ends up killing the high priest of the temple and installing his own priest. Then, on top of everything else, he erected an altar to Zeus on the temple's altar and made it a place of ritual prostitution. Now, if we take that historical event into account and look at Daniel's prophecy as an interpretation of that event, we suddenly see that the anointed one that is cut off is a high priest, which is how the term is usually used. Uh, In this case, it would be Onias III, a high priest of Israel, a hero to the people who was murdered. And then in the passage that immediately follows, the prince who is to come is Antiochus. And the half a week where he, quote, he shall make sacrifice and offering to cease and there shall be an abomination that desolates, that is referring to the persecution of the Jews and to the erection of an altar to Zeus in the temple. Now, this interpretation is far more plausible than the Christian one because it accounts for the whole prophecy. And this is where it gets important for understanding how Christian apocalyptic ideas are oftentimes based on this prophecy. Christians have never been able to agree on what the second part of the prophecy, which talks about with abominations uh, that desolate and the prince that is to come, they can't agree on what that's supposed to mean. And they've invented different ways to explain it. But every way they use to explain it relies on inserting gaps into the prophecy. There's some area of time that that prophecy does not cover. So one way is to believe that the abomination that desolates is a reference to the destruction of the second temple in the year 70 AD. But others, sometimes referred to as premillennialists, believe that this is an apocalyptic account of the end of the world and that the priest who is to come after the first uh, anointed one is cut off The priest who is to come is a reference to the Antichrist, which means you have to insert a 2,000 plus whatever years there are to the rapture that long of a gap into the prophecy. So again, true to form, they try to claim uh, as a hit what seems to match their beliefs in this prophecy. Uh, They count that as a fulfillment, but they anything that doesn't quite match is just going to be fulfilled in some future date, which 
Uh, if you look at many of these cases of supposed fulfilled prophecy, that's, that's exactly what you see them doing. So in a strange sense, this prophecy does not actually establish any sort of apocalyptic Christian uh, future. It's actually the insistence that this prophecy has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ that um, makes that interpretation follow. Because if you, if you insist that this must be about Jesus Christ, then all this stuff, this mysterious stuff about an abomination that desolates and all this, you need an explanation for. And so that's thought to be, well, this must happen uh, when or immediately before Christ will return at some sort of future date. Now, there is uh, one tiny flaw in the argument that I'm presenting that should be, uh, that I should mention. And that is that uh, the time frame given in the book of Daniel wouldn't exactly fit the events recorded in First and Second Maccabees either. Um, the pre- uh, priest Onias is thought to have been executed sometime around 171 BCE, whereas Daniel's prophecy would have this event taking place at 104 BCE. Uh, so there's a 64-year difference there. Uh, I don't personally think this is a problem because most scholars date the book of Daniel in its final form to some point in the second century after this took place. And so the further you get back in time, uh, the less historically accurate the book of Daniel is when he deals with dates and people and events. This is completely understandable if the prophecy, as often happened back then, if the prophecy was written after the event took place. They're going to know an awful lot about their particular time frame, but Daniel's idea of when to date either the prophecy of Jeremiah or any of these other possible uh, starting points for the prophecy was probably off. Now, all, if all of this is not enough to refute this prophecy in the minds of any believers that might be listening to this show, I offer to you one more piece of evidence. This comes from an essay written by Richard Carrier that mentions Daniel's 70 weeks. Carrier speaks of numerous messiahs around the time of Jesus that claim to be fulfilling this prophecy. So many, in fact, that the Jewish historian Josephus actually blamed the prophecy in Daniel in part for why the Jews were warring with Rome. Other writers of the time, such as Suetonius, also mentioned the prophecy and how it was perpetuating a, quote, firm persuasion that in the ancient records of their priests was contained a prediction of how at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. Carrier puts it best when he says, quote, clearly everyone was retrofitting this prophecy to fit whichever ruler they wanted, and so there can be nothing miraculous in Jesus being one of them. So even if we were to forget about all the rest of that evidence I presented to you, the simple fact is, if you want to take this as a fulfillment of prophecy, referring to a Messiah who would come and die sometime around 30 A.D., the next logical question is, which Messiah do you want to pick? Which of the many Messiahs around at that time does this refer to? 
If it seems obvious that it must be Jesus, it's only because he's the one that we still know about today. But if you were around at that time, you could take your pick of any number of self-styled messiahs and kings. But I consider myself an open-minded guy, and if you think you have an answer to that, Hugh Ross or anyone else, I invite and encourage you to send your comments to doubtcast at gmail.com, and we will certainly discuss them on the podcast. going to end this week again with another edition of the shit list the props and shit list is when we heap scorn on those who need it and give praise to those who deserve it topping the shit list this week is oddly enough a car dealership out in california keith and sons ford a friend of mine brought this to my attention a friend of hers actually recorded their radio ad, and you can see the video online. We'll post that link. But here's a transcript of the commercial. Quote, Did you know that there are some people in this country who want no prayer in schools and want In God We Trust taken off our money? But did you know that 86% of Americans say they believe in God? Now, since we all know that 86 out of every 100 of us are Christians who believe in God, we at Keefe and Sons Ford wonder why we don't just tell the other 14% to sit down and shut up. I guess maybe I just offended 14% of the people who are listening to this message. Well, if that's the case, then I say, that's tough. This is America, folks. It's called free speech, and none of us at Keefe and Sons Ford are afraid to speak up. Keefe and Sons Ford on Sierra Highway, Mojave, Rosemond. If we don't see you today, by the grace of God will be here tomorrow. This is a radio ad for Keith and Sons Ford. Now, I'd say it's pretty self-evident why they've made it onto the <laughs> shit list here. So, Oh, I just love I love the irony too of the whole, you know, they can just get the hell out of here. Uh, they can sit down and shut up and then move This into, is America. It's called free speech. It's called free speech. Yes. <laughs> it's, isn't 14% about also the proportion of like Hispanic Americans and maybe, you know, 13 uh, African Americans. So we could just they're a minority. So they need to sit down and shut up. That's if right. There's a majority of white people. Oh, yeah. Sure. And it's amazing that he says 86% of Americans say they believe in God. Therefore, they're Christians. Yeah, that was a pretty big influence. Which is also a big mistake there. In fact, that 14%, if that's even an accurate number of... Or of assuming that, uh, you know, all, all believers in God are also anti-church-state separation. Right, absolutely. But that, that 14% then is actually a much larger percentage than the... Jewish population, I believe, larger than the Muslim population. Well, in they America. need to really sit down and shut up because they're even smaller numbers. Exactly. Because clearly, mm -hmm. majority means that you can say that so, correct. Get behind me, Jew. Because uh, because they're on our shit list, I'm offering a challenge to our listeners. I'd like all of those of you out there who make up that 14% who should just sit down and shut up to send a letter or email to Keith and Sons. Their email address is ksf 
at keithandsons.com. Keith is K-I-E-F-F-E-A-N-D-S-O-N-S. Keithandsons.com. Send them a letter and be sure to BCC us on the letter so that we can read it too. Because I would love to hear what you have to say. Now, of course... Keep it respectful. Oh, yeah. Uh, we got classy, classy Could we also uh, issue a further challenge to Keith and Sons Fords to show that with their godly support that maybe their cars are more reliable in some way than cars sold at secular car dealerships? <coughs> that uh, would be fantastic. We could compare those numbers or, you know, maybe they should offer a double your money back if the car uh, breaks down. That would prove their godliness uh, because God would protect their, you know cars from any type of mechanical failure. That's right. And for those of you in the area or for those of you who like the old-fashioned touch and would like to mail letters the old-fashioned way, that's Keith and Sons Ford at 16400 Sierra Highway, Mojave, California, 93501. And we would love to see... Yeah. What you are writing to these good folks. Tell them reasonable doubts sent you. I wonder also if the Ford Corporation would consider losing maybe a 14% market share. Would they, do they have enough profit right now to be, uh, to be able to lose all their non... Uh, oh, yeah, they're doing real well. They're just so, you know, maybe other people should consider not uh, buying the Ford cars since their business isn't wanted with the Ford Corporation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we could have a little bit of room on the shit list for one more. And that is our own Calvin College here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. According to the Associated Press, Calvin College this fall will allow safety personnel with a police background to carry handguns on campus over the protest of some students at the private Christian school. The college trustees approved the use of force policy after a lengthy question and answer session Oh, thank God they have a question and answer session. Oh, I know. Isn't it great? With the chairman uh, of the 30-member board, apparently they were concerned about the school shooting at Virginia Tech and feel that rent-a-cops packing on campus will assuredly make everybody more safe. Yeah. What's your major? I got you. No, I got you covered. No, (laughs) everybody drop. I I have to say. Cover me. I'm going to the library. Cover me. I got to cross the quad. Calvin has, uh, to be fair, they have such a record of of violence on their campus. I believe at one point a boy and a girl held hands. It was awful. Um, No, they smoke. They smoke at Calvin. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Oh, they do. They also dance, which in in the area is actually a a controversial move. Yeah, but when they wear those wooden clogs, it sure makes a really loud, frightening noise. That's right. So, you know, thank goodness that they will be able to to carry weapons. Now, the cool thing is the the guns are are tulip-endorsed. So the bullets only hit the people that they are predestined to hit. Oh, see, there we go. Let me just say, as a graduate of the of Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, I, I would have loved to have some sort of handgun policy on that <laughs> campus where we actually really needed it to yeah, go from me. building to building. There are high schools that need this a lot more than Calvin College. There, there are McDonald's that need this more than Calvin College. But, hey, more power to them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for suffering through another one with us. Be sure to send us your comments, questions, and challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. 
Check out our website, www.doubtcast.org. Find us on Facebook. We also have a fan page as well as our group on Facebook. And we're on MySpace. So you really can't turn a corner on the information superhighway without bumping into one of our many services. Of course not. Are we overexposed? We we might be overexposed. No, actually, we're ridiculously underexposed. Please tell your friends about us. Help us promote the podcast. We want other people to be able to appreciate and enjoy this show as well. Thanks for listening. Adios. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.